This is the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Chris Lambert. And I'm Josh Havens. And we're on a journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us today, and we hope that as you set aside this time for God, that He will help you grow today in the everyday moments of life. Have you ever seen someone do something really stupid and think, man, I'm glad that's not me? might be something as simple as watching a fail video on YouTube, or perhaps you've seen an embarrassing situation of somebody bombing on stage, and you're just really glad that you're not in their position. While this feeling can be pretty simple and innocuous on the surface of it, we find these feelings emerging in our hearts every once in a while in a more sinister way. Sometimes we find that they might reveal a deep sense of pride or anger for another person, maybe even hatred. And if you're like me and have at one point or another experienced the pride version where, man, I'm really glad I'm not like that person because I'm clearly so much better, then this chapter is really going to be for you. Just because we recognize that we have a negative feeling of pride doesn't necessarily mean that we have a good, easy way out of it. We still feel trapped in that sinful thought, that sinful mindset. And that's why I'm really happy about today's chapter, because instead of talking to a guest like normal, we are going to get to listen to a sermon preached by our very own Josh. Josh had an opportunity to preach in a chapel service at Global University this week. His sermon is very real. One of my favorite things about Josh is how raw and honest he can be about sharing his experiences and sharing his emotions and the dark times in his life. He's willing to go there with us so that we may learn from his mistakes, learn from his experience, and hopefully come away a little wiser and able to tackle the challenges in our own lives a little bit better. So I know you're going to love this chapter when we get to hear part one of Josh's sermon about the Pharisee and the tax collector. It was late in the winter of 2014, and Alicia and I were living in an 850-square-foot cabin at Sunstream Retreat Center just outside of Ogden, Iowa. A few months earlier, we found out that we were pregnant with our oldest son, Noah, and we were both working about 80 hours a a week at the time. The stress was piling up faster than the snow did that winter, and I wasn't doing very well at handling it. It was in that dark winter in Ogden, Iowa, I found the end of myself, all my physical, emotional, and spiritual capabilities. Growing up, I was never the pastor's kid, but I was the missionary's kid, the worship leader's kid, the deacon's kid, and everything else in between those. And this gave me an identity. I was the kid who always knew the right answers in Sunday school, and I somehow grabbed on to the idea that the Christian life is always about doing the right thing. I liked learning new things so that others would tell me how well I had done, and I had to be perfect, and I loved the way others responded when it looked like I was being perfect. My life story, in a nutshell, is this. Growing up, I thought the Christian life was simple. Do the right things, say the right things, and in the end you'll hear, well done. 
My sin then taught me that it was more complicated than I could ever hope to understand. In the end, though, grace taught me, is teaching me, that it's simpler than I could ever imagine. I don't think I'll ever fully understand how easy and light the yoke and the burden of Jesus is. But the beginning of this lesson of grace started that winter in Iowa, and it took me to the deepest darkness I've ever faced in my entire life. When we experience depression and anxiety like this, there are really two types. There's a generalized type and a more specific type. I was experiencing both that winter. The stress of life brought on a generalized depression and anxiety that clouded my entire thinking. I was anxious about every little thing going wrong in life. I was always thinking about the what ifs. What if Alicia drove off a bridge and never came back? What if I suddenly found out I had cancer? And these irrational fears that flooded my mind brought with them a general sense of dread and anxiety. And I was also becoming very depressed in a general sense at that time. Everything seemed dark. My thoughts felt trapped inside my own head in a way that I haven't been really able to describe accurately. But when I describe it to those who've been there, they seem to understand. Along with those feelings came a more specific anxiety and depression. I was beginning to see my world crumble. The good Christian kid facade that I had built around doing the right things couldn't stay up when the stress and anxiety overwhelmed me, and it made me feel threatened. There was nothing I could do about it, no emergency facade or any other backup facade that I could put up to keep up appearances, and so I felt pretty hopeless. In reality, God was allowing me to find the end of myself. He was allowing me to feel the full weight of the burden of earning my own place in eternity that I was trying to take on myself. I thought I could do it all. He taught me that I couldn't. I was having an identity crisis, and the general stress and anxiety of life gave that crisis the perfect habitat to grow out of control. We're all really good at wanting to rule our own existences. We're masters of it, really, and that's the sinful condition. The more I study and read about even the heroes of the faith, the more I see that this desire is common to all humanity, saint and sinner alike. In the Western church, we have this idea that somehow the Christian life is about improvement and becoming more like Christ. I'm here to tell you, yes, it is that, but not really. Becoming more like Christ is the byproduct of the Christian life. And it only happens when we recognize we need him to do it for us. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said it like this, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. This process of surrender, this movement full speed astern, is what Christians call repentance. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we've been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing part of yourself undergoing a kind of death. And here comes the catch. Only a bad person needs to repent. Only a good person can repent perfectly, and he would not need to do it. The same badness which makes us need it makes us unable to do it. Can we do it if God helps us? Yes. But what do we mean when we talk of God helping us? We mean God putting into us a bit of himself, so to speak. The Christian life is really about recognizing we're in need of God every day, living a life of humility 
In light of that realization and resting in the amazing grace that he so freely provides. I want to take a look at my favorite parable in all of scripture where Jesus' description of this Christian life changed the way I look at how I live my life. So flip your screens to Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Or if you're uh, an old soul like me and still use paper, that's amazing too. Uh, We're going to read the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Or if you grew up reading the eloquence of the King James early modern English, the Pharisee and the publican. I'm reading from the common vernacular of the 2011 work published by Zondervan we call the NIV. So as we leave this passage today, I'm praying that you walk away with a desire to live a life of humility that rests solely on God's grace as you walk with him from now into eternity. Let's read. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other one, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The setting of this parable is super important to understanding just how remarkable these events are. In his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, Ken Bailey talks about what the two men in our parable were really uh, probably doing. He says that in English, we commonly use the word pray to refer to private devotion and the word worship to refer to what a community does together. On Sundays, the Christian in, in the Arab world, however, says to his friend, I'm going to the church to pray. And the friend knows the speaker is on his way to a public worship service. The two men in Jesus' story weren't randomly in the temple courts for a private time of prayer. They were there to participate in a public worship service. In fact, they were likely there to participate in one of the twice daily sacrifices, one at dawn and the other at three in the afternoon. The Mishnah, which is uh, the oral tradition that's been recorded by the rabbis in the the first few centuries uh, AD, they describe this uh, twice daily events in detail. And this isn't don't confuse this with the Day of Atonement. This is different. And that, that only happened once a year. This was more like a daily service of repentance and humility toward God that kind of reoriented the community every day. The service in the morning would begin with the cleaning out of the altar and preparing the fire for the coming day. All of this before daybreak. At dawn, a lamb would be led out and tied to the northwest corner of the altar. Then, as the sun broke over the hill two silver trumpets would sound and the gates of the temple would open up. Worshippers would fill the inner court for public prayer while all this was happening. As the sound of the trumpets echoed through the streets of Jerusalem, a pair of priests entered the holy place in the temple to prepare the altar of incense and the lampstand. As they went inside, another pair of priests would slaughter the lamb outside and prepare it for the sacrifice on the altar. And this all led to the most solemn part of the entire service. At this point, a cymbal would crash, and the entire complex would go silent, 
as incense and coals from the altar where the lamb had been sacrificed were taken into the holy place. As the priest took these things up the steps, all of the worshipers would pray. When the priest set the incense and the coals on the altar in, of incense in the holy place, <clears throat> the smoke would carry up the aroma of the sacrifice and the prayers of the people outside the temple up to God. It's in this setting, this most solemn part of the twice daily sacrifice for atonement, that we find a picture of two men praying and participating in this very public worship service, one doing so for public appearances, the other off to the side, ashamed and at the end of himself. If you've never found the end of yourself, I want to challenge you to find it. It's a very painful place, though, and it requires a part of you to die when you reach it. But that's what Jesus calls us to do over and over again, both his, in, through both his teaching and the life he's demonstrated for us by going to the cross. If you've found the end of yourself before, I want to challenge you to lean into that place of weakness. There's more freedom and grace there with Christ than you could ever dream of anywhere else. And so even though it's painful, lean into it. It's amazing how often we can miss what God is doing in our midst when it's right in front of our face. We seem to think that if God were to just do the thing, if he would just come and appear before us or speak to us in an audible voice, that we would get it. But it seems as though we miss God speaking to us in what are some of the most obvious ways. And so I'd like to challenge you today to not be like the Pharisee, missing the point of the situation that he was in. And the way that I think you should do that is to be mindful of what God is doing in your life. Be mindful of his presence. Look for those opportunities that God is speaking to you. He's putting somebody in your path. He's orchestrated a situation in order to get your attention. In fact, I hope this podcast chapter has been exactly that, a God-ordained situation in which he's trying to get your attention and show you something, how to walk more in his grace, how to walk in his presence as he desperately desires to walk with you. So you're really going to want to come back tomorrow and check out part two and see how Josh wraps all of this up as he challenges us to question our motives. Thanks for listening to the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. If you want to stay up to date with everything that's happening at Daily Growth, go to dailygrowthdiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. Or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Oh, 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 oh,